Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creative... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages. It's always great to have your company. Philip Quast is a storyteller of immense passion and vast emotional and vocal range. He's also a committed teacher, a practice he delivers with enormous empathy, experience and curiosity. Known best, perhaps, for his iconic performance as Javert in the original Australian cast of Les Miserables, Philip has worked on some of the world's most prestigious stages in both plays and musicals. He has won the Laurence Olivier Award for Best Actor in a Musical three times and has been recognised as a master in his field. Philip's career is extraordinarily eclectic. He spent 16 years as a presenter on Play School has appeared in plays with Australia's biggest theatre companies and captivated audiences as Georges Seurat in the London premiere of Stephen Sondheim's Sunday in the Park with George. It's a guarantee that any encounter with Philip is engaging and exciting, as you'll soon understand in this two-part conversation with Philip I was drawn back to teaching and I absolutely love it. Well, it's the great love of my life at the moment. I, I, I think it's uh, you can either just keep bumbling along as an older person, getting a little bit cynical. But the thing about teaching at the moment is it really it's the thing that Sontime always said: it's that the, the the pupil teaches the teacher. There is a crossover period. You start learning exponentially, you know, especially in this world. It's changing so fast. So uh, in order to keep up with it, even as a performer, I'm on the front line, certainly seeing the effects that it has on students and how the students learn and realising, I mean, they have a lot of challenges at the moment, especially in the last few years with COVID. And it's, um, yeah, it's interesting. We can talk about it uh, but, but yes, they're, they're personalised, but also the industry's changed so much. Well, yeah, it is. And the industry is desperately trying to, this notion of going back, you know, like get, let's get it back to what it was. We see that in government. But it's uh, it's not. It's some, The kids are sort of way ahead of us in some ways. They say, you know, stop teaching us in the world that was. Let's teach us in the world that's going to be. It's a bit like climate change. You know, we've got to catch up. Mm. And so uh, I'm not sure that because of, let me get my head around this, because I'm an actual performer, I I live in both worlds. Uh, Let's talk about learning at the moment. (laughs) 
I can see that there are really great ways to learn your work and your your craft and your script and working on uh, and different ways of working. But they are struggling definitely at the moment to build their craft because of technology. I have no doubt about it. I live in both worlds and I can be as addicted to technology as anyone else. And I know it affects the way that my, my brain works. And that's where a lot of my teaching now is challenging. I'm challenged and they are challenged because it feels like uh, I'm a bit old-fashioned in the way that you approach your work and your script and the way that you learn things. But the brain is still the same as what it has been for 60,000 years. Something has definitely happened in terms of a virus entering viral ways of learning entering their brain which is addiction to technology and i do think that affects their acting oh very much so look it affects them as beings as well i'm sure that um the um increased amount of mental health issues in younger people is contributed to by technology absolutely and it's because it's designed to be addictive it's designed Mm -hmm. to be addictive just to even sit down and talk to them now about how I say, how much work did you do on this? And they say, I worked on it for two hours. And I said, well, let me put a scenario to you. Did you work for two hours with no technology in the room? And there's a silence. And I say, when you deep learn, you have to literally, it's a lonely road, the loneliness of the long distance runner. You have to put something aside and devote yourself entirely to that for set long periods of time. You may want to do it for 20-minute blocks, but if they say, yes, I worked on it for two hours, the scenario is they sit down for two minutes, they look at their phone, it goes ping, and then they stop and they just fiddle with it. Oh, you know, and then they go send a message, come back, then they start learning or working on their lines again, and then ping, uh, they look back at it again, and they all smile when I'm describing this scenario because they will not learn without that happening. There's moments of distraction all the time, which even makes class difficult because the fidgets, they've I've got ADHD, their legs are going, they're fidgeting, they're twitching, partially because if you're talking, as I invariably do because I'm very loquacious, (laughs) uh, they start to fiddle very, very quickly because it's hard for them to take in wads of information of one person speaking for any longer than 30 seconds or a, a time yeah. clip or a, you know? I, I teach at a school where we've just banned phones. Um, they're not to have them during the day. And it's extraordinary, the effect. I must say that the kids have, uh, they're coping quite well, but this is a generation who rely on their phone, not just for the social interaction, but but as a clock and as uh, somewhere to restore notes. So they're all unsure of the time because nobody has a watch anymore that, and a camera, well, that's- you know. It's interesting you say that because I, I I now ask the time and that no one if if I forget my watch they go I said has anyone got the time and one girl the other day said oh yes I've got a watch and she looks at it and uh, I said that's an Apple Watch and I said to her what happens when notifications go off and are you wearing that all the time she said oh I just look down and then I ignore it and I said but do you mean all this time that I'm talking and teaching to you that's gone bzz, bzz, bzz in class? And she goes, yeah, but I can ignore it. And I don't I don't think you can. Uh, you literally can't. But I've been doing some sort of little studies myself because if 
Uh, and I begged them, if we've done an hour and a half class, for the least for 15 or 20 minutes after the class, do not go to your phone straight away because those synapses you're starting to establish in that period of time instantly disappear mm. the mm. moment you go to your phone. If you can wait at least 20 minutes, half an hour, then you have some chance of those synapses developing and gaining strength. Otherwise, the addictive nature goes back and wipes them out straight away. And then that affects memory. That affects how they even learn lines in terms of uh, paraphrasing, the amount of paraphrasing <laughs> that actors do in the real I was appalled when I recently did a production. That It's a sort of a summation of what was approximately said, you know, just an approximation of what was written. Yes, and I'm I just found that Yes, I find that astounding because I imagine they would get a song lyric right because it's set up with a whole rhythm and 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 melody, etc. The text oh, is no you'd different. Be really, you'd be oh, surprised. really? Yeah, you'd be surprised. <laughs> dear, 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 you'd be surprised. And to get them to say, "Listen, can you just sing this in an Australian accent?" It's even hard for them to literally go to be singing now in your own voice, then to American, and jump backwards and forwards because that's part of your job too. Uh, although a lot of songs are written in an American accent and American speech patterns, and they, they're easier to sing in an American accent, sometimes your job should be to literally be able to do it in an Australian accent or a neutral accent. But do you think I can get them sometimes to go, will you stop saying world instead of world? It's hard because... Yeah. Uh, to to stop that, you have to make a conscious choice. But the the habitual nature of being lured back in there is quite extraordinary. I look, I'm not saying I'm not down on it. I'm I'm finding it fascinating. As an older person in their teaching, they're saying, Philip, just watch it. You know, make sure you don't stop reading your books at night. That's that's the other thing, reading. Uh, I don't think I know, and I ask, what are you reading? It's very rare that you get people reading. Maybe sometimes the private school students may that you have in tertiary education, but uh, they don't read necessarily, and that causes a problem too because the acting, when you read, it stimulates the imagination. You read a passage and then you visualise. But if your only reference to uh, language is visual, means that you go straight to looking how that acting scene is done on YouTube, then you're only learning one way. That's visually and to some extent sound-wise. But you're not stimulating your imagination to visualise so that when you're acting and you, you might be saying, oh, I was walking down this road. And you are telling the audience, the audience is seeing you do it. What I get now is reporting acting. We, there's, there's no connection to it. You just say, I was walking down this road and it has no visual connection in the mind's eye. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So we, I'd spend a lot of time going back and when I do Shakespeare classes to get them to visualise, I go back and do etymology. So you look at a line and I'll say, do you know what... Uh, I'm 
what was one I was saying the other day? Havoc, you know, there's a line from Julius Caesar, cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war. You know, I'll say, do you know what havoc comes from and or what it means? And, you know, havoc, they just go, yeah, melee, you know, whatever. And I said, but where does it come from? And it's an old, I think it's an old French phrase, Creer havoc, and it was the call that went out on the battlefield that when the you were routing the enemy, someone would yell out havoc, and it was the signal for you to go to, to go and rape the enemy's wives and children, and to call your wives and kids on to cut off the hair, pull out the teeth of the wounded, and take their boots, hence booty. Uh, to castrate those men that were wounded because you might want to use them as slaves. Uh, and once you have that etymology and those images in your mind, when you say, as an actor, then get up because you've done that study, you go, cry havoc. You don't have to act because you have an image in your mind. If you haven't done that imaging, then your voice is not, doesn't change. Every word. Every word carries a particular weight. Well, it carries behind. an image. Yeah. It carries an image behind it. And when I, you know, I was brought up on the way to literally boringly go through and get the dictionary and go through and look those words up and look up their etymology to make sure that I had an image for it. Mm. You know, when, when you said they love it, though, when you start doing it and you say, you know, when, when the word ghost was said in Elizabethan times, the audience might have, would have gone, oh, at Shakespeare, you know, because they, they all believed in ghosts. And then you tell them that, then you say to them, you know, it's connected to uh, the same root, aghast, aghast, from the same Latin root, ghastly. And if someone was aghast, it'd be because they'd seen a geist. Hence, you know, you get poltergeist. And <gasps> so now I say, if someone was aghast, those words aren't used necessarily anymore because you're not used to jumping from image to image or you don't see them on the written page. Oh, God, I'm going on already, aren't I? Oh, no, I love it. I love it. We're in for a great conversation, Philip. I can tell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, here's an obscure question to um, to set us off on, on, on the other parts of performance. September 12th, 2001, do you recall what you were doing? So it was obviously the day after the Twin Towers. I was just about to start rehearsals for South Pacific. Oh, no, I do remember. I was doing, I came over, that's right, I'd flown over to do Corridors of Power. Yeah, for the ABC. The ABC. We landed, I landed that morning, and I was a bit jet-lagged, and I went to the ABC. We had this fantastic first day rehearsal. We are going to just start shooting the next day. And then I, I came and I was so jet lagged. I was staying at Martin McCallum's flat in McClay Street. I remember very, very clearly. And I fell asleep on the couch. You know, that terrible jet lag feel you get. And then I woke up and I saw, I saw this thing on television. I'm thinking, oh, I'm watching uh, Towering Inferno. You know, the movie's on. Mm -hmm. And then I started watching it and was coming out of this stupor. And then... Uh, that terrible jet lag stupid and then gradually it, and I, it all started coming it was happening then and I started waking up and then literally I, I rang Carol my wife thinking because it's hard to imagine it now but we didn't know what was going to happen 
I remember thinking, we all thought the world's going to end, remember? Mm. They shut all planes down in America. We didn't know whether a battle had started. And I went into this terrible panic that uh, I wasn't going to see my family again, being mm. across the other side of the world. Because literally, I wasn't exaggerating. It was like nothing we'd ever experienced. And, of course, I went back to the ABC the next day, and they'd written this political satire, which lit which meant nothing <laughs> in the face of that this production we were going into was um seemed irrelevant and uh because the whole of politics changed overnight and it was completely out of date and there was mad scrambling for what we were going to do to these scripts and how we would do it i asked because i i spent that day with you i had a small scene with you um, in corridors, oh, and, and we, oh, I don't know if you remember or not, but we, we, we I sat do there remember. glued to the television. My, I had a little role, I was a deep throat, um, and we had a scene in cubicles next to each other where That's I was really. revealing some secrets. And I told, told all my friends to watch, uh, because I was going to have this scene with Philip, and you know, it was corridors of power, and they dubbed over me with Peter Carroll. You're joking. <laughs> Oh, God. There you go. Art well, isn't yes. easy. Oh, no. Isn't no. that a... Oh, 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 I'm, well, I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, uh, no, 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 no. a wonderful man. It, and you a wonderful would, voice. Yes, but listening to you now, I'm thinking, why would they do that? You have oh, this fantastic voice. I know. Actors, we're just warm props sometimes, aren't we? Perhaps oh, not no, you. But can, <laughs> did we ever have a discussion about what was happening? Oh, absolutely. I remember lunch. We just sat there glued to the television in disbelief. You know, we were making art while this catastrophic event was happening on the other side of the world. And it made no sense because of uh, this. It seemed irrelevant. Mm. This little funny thing about, you know, I was playing a conservative politician you know, and, and it just was, a, it, it literally felt like we were just doodling our thumbs and what in the hell was going to happen. I remember them desperately trying to rewrite it because... They, they, we sort of, I think we stopped production just for a day. But what do we do? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's extraordinary, Peter. Mm -hmm. Well, Philip, following a, a vast and eclectic career that you've, you've had on the boards for several decades, um, in 2017, after a production of Follies at um, the National Theatre. Several. Theater it's in double London. several. It's double several. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, go on. Um, you, you decided that you're going to step back from performance and um, uh, give that all a break, and, and it's, it's great that you found new energy in teaching. Well, no, the teaching's always been there. I've done it all the time. Even when I was in England, I did it, and, and it's partly to do with, well, I'll, I'll get on to that, but when I say step back from performing, I really had no choice. My body's just worn out. Uh, the the side effect of doing all these long, long-running shows is that it's not a natural thing on your body to to fall on your knees night after night after night, eight times a week, you know, or to, you know, and I played a lot of angsted characters who have had, had to fall, you know, fall, crash, waiting for Godot just night after night, kaplump, we were having a car crash. So... It wasn't performing per se. I mean, I'm still up for doing film and television or anything. It was musicals. I walked off Follies after the last night because I was quite thin then. I was fit. But I walked home every night 
on that tube and I came home and I was in such pain, just thinking, I cannot do this. And I thought it was just, and I got tired. Uh, and so, but there was something else that went at the same time with that tiredness was that I walked off after that last night of Follies at the National and thought, I really don't want to do another musical because that was as good as it gets that last night. I just thought that material, that part, the director, Dominic um, Cook, uh, having Stephen Sondheim there bawling his eyes out, thinking he'll never see a production like that ever, and it will never, ever happen again because no one can afford to put it on on that scale, commercially, certainly. They might do it amateurly-wise, but just with those costumes and that crew, the cast, Imelda Staunton and Janie D, and, you know, they, uh, and the musical director uh, to have... Um, Jonathan Tunick, they're redoing all the orchestrations, the band, a 27-piece band, I, I, um, and at the Olivier, which I love. I thought, that's it. Why? I, I cannot put myself going into more shows. And also we recreated. We went back and did the original script. And so we had a chance to really ironically create something new with Follies because it had, it, it had never really been done. Uh, since its original, in it, in that original version, since it was first done. And even then it wasn't done on that scale. So I walked off stage and went, that's it. And I've pretty well stuck by that for musicals for five, for four years or whatever it's been. I have just, it's now four months since a double knee replacement and a 12 months since I had my hip done. And I've just started feeling re-energised again. That's been a really difficult thing. So my first of all, my body wore out. I did uh, Death of a Salesman just before the knee operation because a small part and because I thought that's all I could physically cope with. And Paige Rattray insisted that I come in and play, as she says, come in and play with, play with us, Philip. And I went, oh, okay. And... I, I jumped to it partly because she's an extraordinary force of nature and uh, I'm, I'm sort of captivated by her energy. Uh, I didn't have the responsibility of the leading role and uh, I was desperate to get on and do a straight acting play again. And uh, I'd never done Miller, which I'm sorry to say, I, I, I'm sorry I've missed out on because he's a wonderful writer. So, but in the meantime... I've rediscovered with my relationship with Anne-Marie Anne MacDonald that I've quite liked doing these little cabaret concerts where I get to chat and talk and, and sing. And so in some ways I've, I've rediscovered singing again, like the enjoyment of performance through that. And that started when I did a little, the idea of, talking more and just chatting about my life and being honest about it came about when I did a little concert at the Hayes where David Campbell said, would you do a cabaret? And I said, no, but why don't you interview me, David? So he interviewed me and Michael Tyak just played and we did two little shows and I didn't do the same show twice. I didn't know where the interviews were going. And then David would say, why don't you sing a song? And I got up and then I sang and I, 
I didn't know what I was going to sing. Tyak, in fact, just would sometimes start playing a song. I knew I had a, a set number, but the show was different the next night. And I really loved the idea of never repeating the same thing twice. And technically, that's what happened with Foley's because Dominic Cook, the director, said, I never want to see the same thing twice. And for the first time in my life, I started enjoying performing because I wasn't so rigid in my, in my, uh, and of course, in musicals, you've got to be the same in lots of ways because you're locked in by music. But certainly, I really I learned to rediscover much, 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 much more play. And, uh, and I, I love the idea of anything could happen now on stage. I fall in love with the unexpected again. So I don't think I'll do another musical because the idea of repeating myself night after night after night and the wear and tear on my body uh, turns me off, to be honest. But the idea of something where there's much more freedom, I really like. I've gone without bread. I've slept in the mud. I've given my best while they've screamed for my blood. I've begged and I've bullied for any small chance to perform At night I've awakened my guts in a knot Remembering how much I gave up and for what Some paints and some costumes, a pitiful tent in a storm A handful of coins a trunk always packed No family, no home Just this madness to act Still, I have a theory About this disease we contract That most men are equally crazy As actor, in fact Why does a boy carve his name on a tree Or the firstborn inherit the throne What is a sculptor aspiring to be When he spends half his life carving stone Kings build their tombs for the ages Poets and fools fill up their pages what are we hoping for what do we fear i say we yearn to leave something that lasts to be known for what little we've done men tell their children the tales of their pasts and each man gives his name to his son I'm delighted to hear that you enjoy the, the, the cabaret form because one of my listening pleasures is Philip Quast live at the Donmar. That, oh, and that, that recording. That's missing about 10 songs. You know that it was nearly a two, it was a two-hour show. Two yeah, you had, you had a lot of material written by significant composers, didn't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Dana P. Rowe and, and uh, Jason Robert Brown wrote one for me. Uh, Bill Brown, the late Bill Brown, the wonderful Broadway arranger, I, I had some lyrics written by John Bannis, the a director I'd worked with, and Bill Brown put some uh, music to it. I'd, uh, yeah, Dana P. Rowe and John 
Don Dempsey, who wrote The Fix and wrote The Witches of Eastwick, wrote me one. I, uh, Stephen Schwartz wrote me a song. Um, so there were a lot of original stuff there. And, um, but I, I did a lot of bottom drawer songs that people had never sung before as well. Mm-hmm. And some Bruce Springsteen and uh, some, some contemporary stuff. I did Bruce stuff. Springsteen yeah. and contemporary stuff. And I and that's sort of what I do now. I, I do. Look, the funny thing is, but I, I can only, I'm really attracted to songs that have a, a narrative. Yeah. I was talking about this the other night. I, I went to, to Launceston to do a promotion. You know, they had a screening of Follies and I did a Q&A afterwards. And uh, and I think it's to do with uh, growing up in the country, hearing country and Western music all the time because I was up at Tamworth and I used to listen to those country and Western songs at night. And I loved any song that had a story to it. You know, and even going back into folk music, you know, once the Jolly Swagman, when you think about it, it's a narrative story. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything that tells a story, the wild colonial boy, all those things. I, I, and the thing about Bruce Springsteen is that they're narrative stories. The river has a through journey. It's just, it's, it, it tells a story. And, I, and I'm attracted to any song that tells, that has a, when you think of the Harper Valley PTA, all those songs they're really wonderful because they've got a beginning middle and end and i'm going i'm attracted in the ghetto elvis you think about it the number of of narrative songs and that what's that wonderful song tell laura i love her about the car crash you know he dies in that last right um that one about i am the morning dj you know that one you know playing on that uh the wichita lineman yeah, when you think yeah. about it, one of the, probably the greatest, one of the greatest pop songs ever written. Mm. It sort of has a narrative to it. Galveston. Yep. You listen to that Jimmy Webb songs. They that's about a man, and that's why it was latched on to people going to Vietnam because it had a story. I'm going on a jet plane somewhere, and this. Um, I, I so I've tended to sing songs that have got a narrative to them. I, lo- I love it. I love it. That tell a story. Yeah. You best open that bottom drawer, I think, and um, <laughs> sounds like there's a whole lot of songs there that you could put oh, into look, a new, I have new show. Of, uh, oh yeah, and at the moment I, I tend to do a sort of, I tend to just Anne Marie and I have got this uh, one that we do, and we put new stuff in and adjust it. But we're thinking maybe of maybe taking one to London and uh, doing a, maybe next year and doing a whole a whole new thing because. Uh, uh, new things have happened in my life. Mm. You know, people become, you know, you lose people. There's children, new children come along. Or, you know, our dog dies, and that affects what you see. Your palace is broader. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, one of the, the musical theatre's great teachers from all counts was Mr Sondheim, um, and yeah. you're a student of his and inhabited many of his musical creations. What what are the lessons that you learnt from um, from Sondheim? Look, it is strange talking about him in the past tense. What's happening at the moment is everyone's telling their Sondheim stories, you know, and there's a sort of basic ownership about, about them. And, of course, he's not here to say that's not true, that didn't happen. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Uh, so that's why they've proliferated, really, and everyone's claiming to be his friend. Look, uh, uh, I had—I believe I had a very close relationship with him, but I, I wasn't his friend, you know, because, first of all, I wasn't his sort of type. I think I, I think he was a bit scared of me in some ways. Um, 
And I don't have that quick wit, that quick entertaining wit that he loved, although uh, uh, I saw it many, many times, his wit. But I was, to be honest, I was scared of him because he had it quite rightly, he had a reputation for being um, a bit stinging sometimes because he was very demanding and he didn't suffer fools. But I have... I have to confess that I was never on the receiving end of that. Although that's not true because one night I put an extra bark in in Sunday in the Park with George, a couple of extra barks. And he rang me up late last night, late one night, and I think he'd had a couple of drinks and berated me and said, you can't do that. You know, you, you mustn't do that. And I was really disappointed that you're blah, blah, blah. And I, 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 I took it on board because um, he, 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 the reason there wasn't extra bucks in there is because um, they shouldn't have been there. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I, I remember, I remember Maria Friedman uh, changing some of the not the lyrics but the dialogue where she said they were cannots and and she changed them to can'ts to make the language feel more real. And he said, "Why are you, what are you doing that? Why did you change that?" He said, "There are laws against that in America." And and she said, well, can't, we wouldn't say that. And he said, well, first of all, you're not speaking English. You're speaking French. Even though you're speaking in English, you're French. But he wanted the dialogue pointless. And he also, he didn't want you to say can't because I cannot. And it was part, he knew exactly why the dialogue was written that way. They talked about it. Um, so, teacher friend, look, I have, it's just the, his ability to just, ping with these gems you know and I, I don't want to keep repeating myself because i talk about a couple of incidents and uh, happenings and experiences i had and i sort of don't want to do if people listen to this i don't want them coming and hearing the same story twice if you know what i'm saying so i'm a bit yeah. reluctant to, to talk about it but uh he it was the acting thing that i loved he had an acting reason for exactly why the pitch was at that level, why the rhythm was there. And, and he was a great acting teacher. He was a dramatist. And a lot of his notes weren't musical. He gave you acting notes. <laughs> he would say, listen, I, I, I wouldn't talk in these terms because I tell students don't play emotions. But he, he would say, listen, he's angrier at this point. And in other words, he wants the stakes to be higher. And the reason it's angry, that's why I've written that note to go up like that and that to come down. And that's why I've written that as, you know, the, 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 he wants more attack at that moment because he's giving you the acting side of it. Um, but look, look, physical things. I mean, I will tell this one. There was a, uh, when we were doing Follies, he's, and I'm not saying the road you didn't take. There's a line that I have to go, um, you're, you're either a poet or you're a lover or you're the famous Benjamin Stone. And I was singing Benjamin, just going sort of slightly, you know, skipping over it, Benjamin Stone. And he said, no, Philip, look, the audience haven't really heard you called Benjamin before. They've forgotten that you're... Uh, who you are, and you have to coin your name. So when you say Benjamin, can you just tap your your body? 
like tap your chest. So uh, to say, that's who I am. I am. And I go, oh, you're the famous Benjamin Stone. And, and when you do that, you go tap, tap, tap me. That is, that's what I am. And he said, I want that there to remind them. And I've put that rhythm there deliberately so that you can physically touch yourself. Wow. Wow. The detail. And Yeah. And also, you know, he would do things like he'd get the props for the, for the, you know, when he was doing Sweeney Todd, he'd get, he'd get props and sort of act it out to know how music is. So he just didn't go, what he's done is he's got a, he's got a bloody shaving brush and he's frothed it up and he's worked out how that rhythm feels in his body, you know? And, um, and, you know, and he's done the physical acting pretty women, He's done that. He's as he's done it. He's visualized the physicality where the razor is moving on the body. So your job as an actor is to try and work out the physicality of 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 how he's how he's worked it out. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Uh, when Sweeney Todd in, in in New York, he suddenly he goes, uh, "The table is too far away from the chair." because he's written a certain amount of music for Sweeney to do those two steps to pick it up. If it's too far away, he's walking too quickly, which means that step jars against the music. He moves in a certain way. And if the table is four steps over there, but he's only written two uh, a, a, a bar of music, um, then Sweeney has to move much quicker, which means he's going across the music and it doesn't, it doesn't fit. He's worked it all out. He's worked it all out. It's like Mrs. Lovett's <laughs> opening number two when she's squashing cockroaches and, and hitting oh, yeah. things all on that the stuff, you know. That's the why he's written, he sat there with when he you know, when he's a little priest and they're doing well they're making the pub, boom, you know, that yes, all that stuff. All the flower, he sat down, he's worked it out with the props. Yeah. Or visualized it at least. Now, as far as a teacher. He just, he, he would, and if you watch those master classes he gives, he's, he really want, basically what she wants you to do is to make sure you, your diction is excellent. <laughs> he wants really good diction because he spent a lot of time on those words. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have to put a lot of homework in to, to somehow work you don't just skip over them. You know, I, I still love that thing about from Into the Woods. You know, I'm thinking, how did he come up with that? You know, and he loved, and, and it'll affect the way you act it. You know, high in a tower, she sits by the hour, maintaining her hair. He, the pun on main that he's given you a maintaining, and then he's got, he's got a wordplay on hair and main. You go, my God, how did he come up with that? But he wants you to know that's there. And if you skip over it, he's going to say, can you hit maintaining? Because he wants the audience, some of the audience to hear the wordplay on main and hair and the double, that it's a double meaning. Uh, and and he, would, he would just, he would often pick you up on those little things like that. Just, he'd say, Phil, just, just ping that out. You've got to go, why? 
and it's it's got nothing to do with these written. It's got oh, look, I don't know where to start. But I had so many of those times where he'd just come on and knock on the door, or he'd pop in and he'd say, "I love the way you got that," because he he knew when you'd got it and done your homework. The devil's in the detail. Yeah, look, absolutely. And that's because he spent hours doing it. And just to flip it off, you know, just to just throw it away. And he didn't mind if you got a little bit, he didn't mind if you didn't quite get the notes sometimes. The rhythm had to be there because there was sense in the rhythm. That's where, because the rhythm had to be spot on. And I'd miss a note here occasionally. He doesn't care because it just, uh, as long as the acting was good. I mean, I've heard... Sheila Ballantyne played my mother in Sunday in the Park with George. She really wasn't a good singer. Stephen was in hysterics when she sang because I'm not saying she sang badly, but she sang like Stephen believed his mother would sing. <laughs> he loved it because her acting was extraordinary because she was in all those Joe Orton plays and she yeah. really knew a, knew a way, way around a bit of text. Yeah. It's the text that he's interested in, really interested in that text. So you needed you need absolute athleticism on that, you know? Yes, she looks for me. Good. Let her look for me to tell me why she left me, as I always knew she would. I had thought she understood They have never understood And no reason that they should But if anybody could Finishing the hat How you have to finish the hat how you watch the rest of the world from a window While you finish the hat Mapping out a sky What you feel like planning a sky What you feel when voices that come through the window go Until they distance and die Until there's nothing but sky And how you're always turning back to from the grass or the stick or the dog or the light How the kind of woman willing to wait Not the kind that you want to find waiting To return you to the night Dizzy from the heart Coming from the hat Studying the hat Entering the world of the hat Reaching through the world of the hat like a window Back to this one from that Studying a face Stepping back to look at a face Leaves a little space in the way like a window But to see It's the only way to see And when the woman that you wanted you can say to yourself, well, I give what I give But the woman who won't wait for you knows that However you live, there's a part of you Always standing by, mapping out the sky Finishing 
Starting on a hat, finishing a hat. Look, I made a hat. Where there never was a hat. And of course, um, you'll be able to share many more stories in oh, moments in the woods that the songs and stories. Well, I don't know time. yet. We've got the, we've got the songs, and uh, I don't know. I think we will get together until and work out the stories there in that week's rehearsal, which uh, we will wade through because we've all got our stories. And uh, yeah, they will be moments in the woods. And I tell you what, sometimes when you do a sometime, you you can't see the trees for the woods because it's <laughs> difficult stuff. So uh, it's going to be fun because. I think Mitchell's uh, wanting us to put, you know, uh, to share anecdotes. And, and there are many. There are many anecdotes, you know. And uh, you're performing alongside the wonderful Geraldine Turner, who had the first yes, Sondheim album yeah. in the world. Uh, yeah, that's right. I think, yeah, absolutely. She was doing it before, dare I say, Sondheim became what he became. You yeah. know, she was way ahead of us all in understanding it and uh, knowing its value and what it would become. And so, and for someone to to literally do a whole album of Sondheim songs, unheard of. And of course, her little story of her little battle with him, I thought, was rather interesting as well. <laughs> I, don't well think was, I don't think it was the same man by the time he got later on in his life. I think it was less less protective of his work. He was still adamant about what he did or didn't like, but he became so much more uh, free because he, by that stage he was much confident that his work would survive anything because he'd seen a lot of very bad performances and a lot of good ones and, and you know, hence gradually into the stage where Bobby and company could be played by a woman. Yeah. Know? What about that? Fantastic. Um, your your repertoire of sometime, Ben Stone in Follies, Judge Turpin and Sweeney Todd, George, Son in the Park, Milus Gloriosus. It was lovely to see that you had a crack at the uh, that wonderful farce of his. And then, of course, yeah. Prince Charming and the Wolf in uh, Into the Woods in Sydney. Is there a That's role, right. a Sondheim role that you would like to have had a crack at that you missed out on? No, no, not really. I um, mean, everyone always said, and Stephen even said to himself, it's about, you know, recently because there was a chance I might be doing it, Sweeney here. So, you know, I got the emails, the name-dropping emails, and we had a little conversation about it. And I was to do uh, to sing a bit of Sweeney in Sondheim on Sondheim, which Tyrone Park was directing, which got cancelled uh, at QPAC last year. And uh, I asked him a couple of questions about Sweeney and I had this idea for doing it again, finally sort of here maybe. And um, and he gave me a couple of pointers, uh, but he said, it's it's disappointing you've never done it. And I said, I think I'm too old. And, I, and he said, oh, don't be so stupid. Um, and I, 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 I probably thought I should have done it but I'm glad I didn't because I know it would have cost me vocally mm. too because I sort of can't hold myself back. And it's ruined many a voice, I have to say. That role uh, of Todd. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I know sort of how uh, it's to be done. The other, the other thing is I think it's, I think it's actually funnier than what it, 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 a lot of people have done it. It's, and Stevens himself said, look, don't, don't get caught up with the concepty ideas of Sweeney. 
He said, because there's only two things you have to do in the show, and that's to make people laugh and to scare the shit out of them. Yeah. And so don't get into the whole industrial revolution and beggars and people being down. You know, he wanted it to be fun and he wanted it to be scary. Uh, and it's hard to make it scary. That epiphany is actually you think. And that's, he, it's the same moment with Ben Stone. There's a moment where the audience has got to think, uh-oh, the actor's lost it. Well, the actor's, he's written it so, it, he calls it a Pirandello moment. The same thing happens in Follies when Ben Stone breaks down. You go, has this actor lost it? Is he Daniel Day-Lewis in Hamlet on stage at this moment? You think, and in order to do that, that would have vocally cost me a lot. It's chilling, those moments, Epiphany and, and Ben's breakdown in Follies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Delicate things, you know, they're yeah. very, and it comes down to sometimes just two seconds of absolute truth to get the, to, to misdirect the audience. You, and if you miss the little run up to it, they, 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 you can't take them there. What a spectacular insight we've had access to in this riveting conversation with Philip Quast. His process as an actor and passion as a teacher illuminate even greater admiration for Quast as one of the country's leading proponents of the musical theatre and making art. Join us in the companion episode, available tomorrow, when Philip guides us through his iconic role as Javert in Schonberg and Bobille's Les Miserables, and the many other triumphs of the musical stage in which he has delighted audiences. Part two of Stage's conversation with Philip Quast, available tomorrow from wherever you access your favourite podcast. Thanks for joining us in this episode. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you tomorrow.